morning, good morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and holiday, whatever, all of that stuff. Um, man, Kobe, what, man, good songs today. So, so good. Um, I always think about while we're singing some of the lyrics that I want to reference and then I can never remember what they are, so never mind. <laughs> you heard them. Um, uh, Excited about today, I, I was telling somebody this week, um, I find us kind of in an odd place. Um, we, we're coming off of a year-long study of the New Testament church, and we just did through Advent, and then we got two Sundays that are kind of stuck in the middle of that. And so just praying, you know, and asking the Lord which direction we needed to go today. And I was telling Bethany last night, when you're in the middle of a book study like Acts, it's really easy. Every week you open up, what's the next passage? Okay, God, what do you got for me today? Versus a, a spot where we find ourselves today where, you know, whole Bible. Okay, God, where do you want us to be this week? So uh, a little bit more um, interesting to, uh, to gather all my thoughts together and try to figure out where the Lord's pointing us today on top of having a shorter week because of Christmas and all that. But, man, the Lord's been faithful this week to, uh, to speak and give me some direction, uh, at least for today, and then we'll see what happens uh, for next Sunday. So just be praying with us uh, as we... As we kind of move into the new year. I'm asking the Lord for vision to ask him, um, you know, what is it that you want us to spend the next amount of time um, studying, uh, what he wants us to learn about who he is and how he wants us to operate as a church. So be praying with me uh, in, that, in that regards. And, and if the Lord gives you a word, certainly let me know. But, but, but specifically be asking God to speak to Glenn and I as we kind of pray through that. Last week we looked at, uh, towards the end of the Christmas story, Glenn focused specifically on uh, the wise men coming and, and witnessing, or not witnessing the birth of Christ, but, but coming and finding the Messiah and his interactions with Herod. And we talked about a couple of important things. Uh, the first being that worship begins when God reveals himself uh, through our experiences in the world that he created, that God pursues us and we experience him first through his world, uh, and, and that the world itself worshiped God before we even did, because they are aware of, of his presence, because he is their creator. We talked about um, that true worship begins when God comes to us, where we are, um, and reveals himself to us in our current situation. So we want to get rid of the idea of that we have to be something before God will reveal himself to us, that God loves us exactly how we are and reveals himself to us where we are. Um, number three, we looked at it, true worship consumes our time and agendas. And Glenn talked about how uh, these wise men lived in a region that was 12, 1,400 miles away. It would have taken them um, a long, long time um, like maybe two years to travel the distance from Persia where they came to find the Christ and, and how as we encounter the Lord, it, it consumes us and it takes over uh, every aspect of our life. And we're going we're gonna to jump into that a little bit more today in a little more depth. We talked about how true worship is not hindered by people of influence. And again, we're going to see that today in the story that the Lord has us in, that when we are pursuing the Lord and, and we get a fresh look of who he is, that it doesn't matter who's around us and what's going on, that the Holy Spirit draws us in and, and our zeal for him becomes such that it doesn't matter who's watching, that we're going to pursue him anyway. And then fifthly, we're going we're gonna to look at, or Glenn talked about last week, that true worship involves giving the best of our possessions, that the wise men came and they gave these gifts that had great, great value, and that as we, uh, as, as people of the body, uh, experience God, that it, it causes us, it drives us to give our very best uh, in, in pursuit of the Lord and, and for Him as, a, as an offering. And so we're going to, again, we're going to jump into that a little bit today. Um, so let's look, we're going to be in, in primarily in Luke chapter 7 today, verses 36 through 50. So let's read that together, um, and then we'll, we'll kind of break it down from there. So starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. I'm going to pause right there and, and, and explain something real quick. In our culture, when we think of reclining, we think of, of recliners, we think of leaning back in chairs in this direction, okay? In, in the biblical text, in their culture, reclining happened this direction. So when they would sit at the table, they would actually lay on their sides of their bellies, lean on their left elbow, and eat with their right hand and have conversation um, a, around the table. And that's important for, for our story, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So, but I wanted to throw that out there. So verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. 
of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, from whom the canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this, for even, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So we're in a very different place than we found ourselves in the last couple of weeks. We've, we were in Advent season talking about Christmas, and, and we're jumping way forward in Jesus' ministry here. But there are so many little parallels and ties that I want to bring out today that echo all the things that we've been hearing, not only from, from uh, this last couple of weeks, but from the whole year. So let's jump in there. Number one was Jesus was invited. Okay, The Pharisee invited Jesus to his home, but his presence invites all who desire to come to him. Okay, so point number one, Jesus was the one that was invited. The Pharisee invited him, but wherever Jesus goes, those that desire to be in him, with him, an invitation follows. Okay, and, and as I read this story, I have to ask myself the question, and I hope that as you read this story, you ask yourself the same question is, how is it that these two people can be in the presence of the same person and have such vastly different experiences with him? The Pharisee... Um, has a, a different interaction with Jesus altogether than the woman does. And I think that the reason uh, is because of how and why they were seeking the Lord. Okay? So the Pharisee is choosing to, to go after Jesus for entertainment and self-gain. This Pharisee in particular, Simon, was of the higher level of the Pharisees. He was well known. Um, in that time, remember we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, the Roman government was, was in control over Jerusalem. They had put Herod in charge as the king, if you will, um, over that region. And, and the, the religious Pharisees played a really important part in how the culture or how the people were governed in that area. And so Simon is of influence. And he knows that this person, Jesus, is very popular right now. He's been performing miracles. He's been teaching. He's the, he's the buzz guy. He's really, really popular. And so he decides if he invites Jesus to his house that that's going to gain him some notoriety. So the Pharisee is seeking Jesus for his own entertainment, for his self-gain. He knows um, that if he brings Jesus to his house, that they're going to have some really interesting conversation. That he's going to be able to ask questions, and Jesus is going to answer those questions in a way um, that is not typically heard of those days. And he's just looking forward to have some, having some really good debate, if you will. He wants to just hang out with Jesus, but, but not because he wants to learn from him, but because he's just interested in the things that Jesus brings. He's interested in the buzz that's going to happen around that experience. He, he doesn't realize that he really needs Jesus. He will at the end of this story, but, but his original invitation has nothing to do with him, his desire to know Jesus in a personal way. It has to do with his own notoriety and his own self-gain. Whereas the woman uh, sought Jesus for her redemption. She has obviously heard of uh, this person of Jesus and the teaching, the miracles that are happening. It says in our story, in our text, that, that when she hears that Jesus is reclining at the Pharisee's table, she immediately goes to that place. We, we need to understand also, in those days, people of, influ of affluence who had a lot of money, their houses were set up in such a way that there was a courtyard um, in the center of the house, and the house kind of wrapped around it in a U-shape. And that courtyard was an open-air space. Um, and even though people were not necessarily invited to dinner, they were allowed to sit around and, and listen in on the conversation. And we might find that a little bit strange, but in their culture, that's the way things worked, especially with guys like the Pharisees. People would go as they are having these, these in-depth conversations over dinner, and they would, they would just kind of crowd around and listen in on the conversation. And so it's not uncommon that this, this woman and others 
would gather around when they know that Jesus has been invited there. Okay? But she's drawn to the gathering of Jesus because of the hope of getting a little bit closer interaction with the person of Jesus. You know, she's, she's probably heard, in, heard him speak probably in the, in the temple or in the streets as he's moving about, but she knows that this is going to be a little bit smaller setting and there might be the possibility of her being able to have a moment um, of interaction directly with him, okay? And she is acutely aware of her need for a savior, okay? She's aware of her sin that's in her life. She knows that it's a problem, and it's obvious that the Holy Spirit is working in her life, and that, and that she knows that, that she has a need, and that's why she's pursuing Jesus, okay? Two people, completely different objectives, both drawn to Jesus, okay? Simon's house, while they're there, like I said, was, was they were eating in an open area, but the invitation wasn't specifically for her and even her interaction that we see when she comes up behind Jesus remember I explained that they were laying on their bellies and so or on their side and so for her to approach from behind him that never made sense to me before because we sit like this right we sit with our feet in front of us and so if she approaches from behind and is crying uh, I didn't I didn't understand because chairs are in the way okay so I didn't get that right but now it makes sense so when they're when it says they're reclining they're laying on their sides and so she approaches from behind and begins to weep on Jesus' feet, and then, and then dries that, okay? So while she's there, the invitation was not for her. She was not invited to the table to eat. She just heard about it and came on her own accord, okay? The intent of Simon, his invitation was for Jesus, was not to allow others to join in the intimacy of that meal. That was, he didn't, this wasn't a community meal where everybody who wants to come sit at my table, come on. This was about him having a conversation with Jesus and letting other people see that, right? They want, he wanted to be known as a person who, who eats with this, this guy that's performing all these miracles, okay? He didn't intend, though, I don't think, to have any real um, depth of conversation. I don't think his intent was to, to go into this meal to learn about who this Jesus person was and come out differently, even though he calls, himself, he calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher, we know his intent is not um, authentic because of the way he interacts with Jesus. He, he makes, a, in our text today, we see Jesus point out at the end that he says, um, when I entered your house, you provided no water for my feet. Um, you, you provided no ointment for my head. You did not greet me with a kiss. All of those things in their culture are super important. The, the, wash, the water for the feet, we all know they wore sandals and the dirts, the roads were made of dirt and so their feet were dirty. And I don't know about you, but when your feet are really nasty, it's hard to relax, right? And they, they want to be able to recline and eat and spend their time in conversation, enjoy themselves. And so it was a normal custom. It was a, a, an expected custom to provide water for your guests so that they could wash their feet. Um, it was a sign of honor and respect, especially for rabbis that when they entered your home, you, you greeted them with a kiss, okay? They're not lip-to-lip thing, kissing on the cheek, I'm sure, okay? But it was a sign of honor and respect for that person. The rabbi did not do that, or the Pharisee did not do that to Jesus. And, and then also it was, it was commonplace for them to provide um, oil for their heads. He also did not do that. And so we see that he's extended an invitation to Jesus, but his invitation is superficial, it's not about him interacting in a personal way with Jesus. It's about him gaining something out of him, okay? But the woman understands that, that her need is greater than the shame of her approaching this situation. She knows she's not welcome, especially in a Pharisee's house of all places. But she understands that her need is much greater than the shame that she could possibly face of the rabbi or of, of the Pharisee running her off, okay? Point number two. How we choose to live will either draw people in because we are living selflessly or turn people away because we're living for ourselves. Look at verse 39 with me again. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Look, this statement is not included in the text to tell us about the woman, right? Already we know who the woman is. This statement in the text is to, to reveal to us the heart and the, and the mind of the Pharisee, okay? Let's be honest, okay? Let's just be real honest with each other for a minute. In our culture, in our community, the church is not held in very high regard because of this very type of thing. We're really, really good at this down in the South, 
right? We'll look somebody in the face and we'll smile and say stuff like, bless your heart. And that's not what we mean, right? Okay? We, we, some people call that talking out of the side of your mouth. You'll be really polite to someone's face. But then as soon as they walk away, you talk about how ugly that black vest is they're wearing, right? No one said that. I'm just playing. By the way, this morning Charlie came in and said, Dad, you look like a cowboy. And I thought, yeah, I do. And then she said, but you're not a cowboy. Aw. I said, yes, I am. And she said, no, you're not. You're daddy. I said, okay, I'll take it. Has no bearing on anything. It was just cute, and I had to tell you. Okay. So here in the South, we have this really uncanny ability to look somebody in the face and be sweet and kind and then immediately turn around and, and have a completely different reaction and response to those that are in our inner circle, right? Okay, we don't like to talk about that, and we don't like to, to think about that in our own minds, but all of us could raise our hands and say that we have been in that place. Um, I, I'm reminded of a story uh, or a time in my life I, when I was really young. I was probably seventh grade, first year in youth group, was super excited about it. Um, and this is one of those experiences where, like, you know, that was, I was... 13. I'm now 35 and I still feel guilty about this, okay? Not because, well, I mean, I am guilty and the Lord's forgiven me, obviously, but it's one of those things that just nags you. I know you know what I'm talking about. These two boys come into youth group. They were a year or two older than me. Um, and obviously, I have a really high fashion sense. You guys know me well enough to know that that is not true at all. But these two boys come in and they've got on blue jean jackets, but not cool blue jean jackets, like, like Walmart blue jean jackets, okay? And this is so superficial and dumb, but I remember all of us in the youth group talking behind their backs about these stupid blue jean jackets, okay? Well, look, the end of the story is the boys never came back to youth group. I don't know if they knew that we were talking about them, but I knew that we were talking about them, and I felt guilty to, that, to this day. And, and, and it, it's easy to look back on a story like this and say, well, I was 13, but if we're honest, like, we still have those thoughts, right? We still think those things about people that, that come in and out of our lives, and, and, and I don't know about you, they happen in my life. I don't like them. And, and I, I ask the Lord to remove that from me. But sometimes, man, it just happens without even thinking about it. It just kind of jumps on me. Well, this is what we see happening with the Pharisee. We can really identify with him because he doesn't say out loud these things that he's thinking. He simply thinks them and Jesus responds. You see, it, what we, you know, we all know what, what Thumper's mom and Bambi would say. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? We're all familiar with that. And our, your parents probably repeated that to you just like mine did. And so we, we've put in our brains, well, if we don't say it out loud, it's okay. We can say something else but still think it, and it's all right. And, and this story is communicating that it very much is not okay. And it's not something that we can just instantly fix, that we can just decide I'm not going to do that anymore. It's part of our sin nature that's in us, that the Holy Spirit has to work out of us. But we have to ask him to do that. And, and so we can identify with the, this Pharisee. We can see how, you know, he's, he's thrown this really nice dinner party. He's invited the best guest. He's probably got the best table fare there. Everybody's really excited about the conversations he's going to have. And then his party is crashed by this woman who's a known sinner. It's, it's not a stretch for us to imagine the way that the Pharisee feels, okay? But just like Jesus says that he didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world, it's not our job either. And when we experience those times in our lives where those thoughts come into our heads, we need to immediately grab hold of those and repent and ask the Lord to forgive us and ask him to change our hearts because that's what's needed. I want you to ask yourself this question this week. Are people more often drawn to you or away from you by the way you treat the people in your life? Think about that. That's a question just for you, okay? We have this guy at our office. Uh, I'll call him the office jerk. I'm going to try not to say his name. I'm not good at that. But he, he's the office jerk, and he knows it, and he's proud of it. And he will tell you, I'm a jerk. But he also calls himself a believer. I find those things to be at odds because when I look at the fruit of the spirit that every believer should have, being a jerk is not on the list, okay? Now, let me be vulnerable with you guys. I am often a jerk. I don't like it. Ask my kids, they'll tell you, okay? Or just spend a little bit of time around me and some will slip out, okay? Thank you. Appreciate that. It was Glenn and not Russ. I'm so proud, okay? That was Talitha. Oh, your voice got deep. Our call as children of God, okay, is to love, to love, to love 
our neighbors as ourselves. Not to be jerks, right? This guy that, that calls himself a jerk, he uses a different word. I'm using the word jerk. He does that because he thinks it makes him a better person. He thinks that it gains him respect. But what it does is it makes people talk behind his back. And, and it gives us, as believers, as the church, a bad name. Because they associate that activity, that attitude, with the person of Christ. And that annoys me. And by the way, I have had conversations with him about that. And he received them. He hasn't changed yet. But I, that's the Holy Spirit's job, not mine. Okay? Over the last couple of years, I've read a, a number of, of books on... Um, reaching out to the LGBTQ community about how to, how to love them and how to minister to them, um, how to reach outside of my own culture and love on the people that are around me, to, um, to, to work with people that are in, in, in um, hard-to-reach places. And look, all of those books that I've read all pretty much say the same thing. Love people. Don't focus on the sin. Just love the person, okay? That's it. Just love them right where they are in the middle of what they are Whatever their activity is, just love them. That's what we see happening with Jesus in this story is this, this woman invites herself in. She crashes the party because she's overcome with shame and with guilt and she knows that the only answer to that is this person of Jesus, okay? All of us are in the same boat, a boat full of screw-ups. We're all sinners, every one of us. All of us find ourselves in that same place of desperately needing this person of Jesus to save us. Look at me with Matthew 20, real quick at Matthew 22, 36 through 40. All of us know this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Everything. All these rules, all these regulations that, that we study and we see in the Old Testament, every bit of that can be handled if we will do two things. Love the Lord and love our neighbor. That's it. That's all you got to do. If you can do those two things really well, everything else is taken care of. Another passage we're very familiar with, but I want to I bring it up. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. This is Paul writing to the church in Colossae. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of, from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. When, when Christ died, the veil is torn. In the, in the Old Testament temple, there was the Holy of Holies and there was a, a huge curtain that hung in there that was there to divide the rest of the temple from the presence of God. And when Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn separating that, that separation, removing that separation that was between us and God because of the blood of Jesus. And Paul is saying, this is the thing that I toil for in Christ's power, in Christ's strength. This is what I'm after because Christ in me is the hope of glory. Christ is the hope of glory. When, when we have spent a year as a church studying what it means to be the church, it boils down to two things. Love God and love your neighbor. The reason I'm bringing all this out is I want to tie together everything that we've studied over the last year that, that when we look back over this past year of 2018, we see this overarching picture. These are some of the things, just big picture, big level that we've talked about. In the beginning of the year, we talked about fellowship in the light, of, of how we are drawn to the light. A funny imagery of that is, uh, I don't remember the movie, but the moth's being drawn to the bug zapper, and one's saying, don't go to the light, and he says, I can't help it. 
that's the imagery, okay? A bug's life. Thank you, Paul. I knew you'd know. We are drawn. As we experience the light, we are drawn to it. We encounter Jesus, and it causes us to love one another, to fellowship with one another. Number two, we talked about knowing the opposition, that as we are pursuing the Lord, the enemy is going to be on attack, and we need to know his schemes and be aware of them so that we can recognize them. And when we're under attack, boom, we go to the source of power, Jesus Christ, and we say, take care of this for me. We talked about devotion, about being devoted to fellowship, about being devoted to breaking bread with one another, about being devoted in spending our personal time with the Lord. Love the Lord your God. How do we do that? We spend time with Him, okay? During uh, the last half of this year, we spent the whole last half studying through the book of, the Act, uh, book of Acts, um, talking about multiplied community, and we, we studied how the church multiplied, and the way that that happened is through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in people's lives, and them loving each other, laying everything on the table and saying, no matter what it takes, you're in a bind, I will help you out because Christ is in me. Look, God has made his calling for our church as TGP West clear. Our calling is to bless our community, Okay? Begin with prayer, listen to them, eat with them, share, serve them, share the gospel. That is our call. Our call is twofold. It's not any different from the rest of the world's churches. Love God, love your neighbor. Listen, I think that what God wanted to communicate today through this, through this passage is that we ought to love well because we have been forgiven greatly. The motivation behind why we do what we do is the forgiveness of Christ. The fact that He laid down everything so that we could experience love. Let's look again at verses 40 through 47. And Jesus answering said to Simon, again, remember Simon didn't say this out loud. He thought it. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, whom the, he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but I, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. Look, not only can we identify in this passage with the Pharisee and understanding why he thought the things that he thought, but we can identify with this woman as well. We have sinned greatly, but we have been forgiven greatly. The motivation behind our choosing to live in community is a reflection of the encounter that we've had with Jesus. Just like this woman in the story. Her choosing to, to face the shame and the ridicule of crashing this party. Her motivation was the love of Jesus. His forgiveness is everything to us. Look at this quote from Henry Blackaby. This was yesterday morning. And, and I love, 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 love when this happens because this is echoing what Glenn preached last week. True worship is life-changing. It creates within the worshiper's heart a hatred for sin. True worship results in repentance, obedient submission, and a desire for holiness. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. We're going to look at that in a minute. True worship generates a desire to show mercy and to express forgiveness. It includes a joyful acceptance of all that God has provided by His grace. True worship is not exclusive. Just as the Samaritan woman rushed off to tell others of her encounter with the Lord, so true worship will compel the worshiper to include others. As a result of this woman's encounter with Jesus, many others in her village came to know Him as well. I was telling Bethany, I saw that woman at the well in a different light this week than I've seen it before, yesterday morning as I was studying. It says in that story that the woman, after she has her encounter with Jesus, she runs to town and she tells everyone, this man has told me everything I've ever done. 
What that means is she has gone and she has run into a city and confessed her sin. Now, that's not something that we do, right, on a normal basis. We don't run into a city and say, look at all the bad stuff I've done. Everybody knew, okay? They knew her sins. And her running into that town is her saying to all those people, I've done all these horrible things. I know it and you know it and Jesus knows it and he loves me anyway. That's what we get to offer people. Our daily encounters with Jesus are the drivers for change in our lives, okay? So what happens is we experience the Lord and we experience His forgiveness and we're blown away. It changes how we live. It changes our desires and we say, I want some of that, okay? And not only do I want some, but I want other people to have it too. Let's look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. Again, a passage we're familiar with, but we, we glaze over it. But let's look at it. This is Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the, of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And Will, who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. When we encounter the Lord, when we really have an experience with the Lord, it changes everything. It is life-altering. A couple of stories from my life, and some of these I've shared with you before, some from this pulpit, but as I was thinking about this text and I'm thinking about what are the experiences in my life that have completely changed my world Two jump out at me the first is and I've shared with you guys before whenever Bethany and I were first contemplating foster care and adoption I joked around about it in my out on it because she's good like that okay and I was going to Uganda and I said to God I said look this is going to be a great opportunity for me to just have some time alone with you and I need, to, I need to know if this is something you're calling us to. Y'all, we weren't in that country two days with feet on the ground. And it was obvious. Because all of the things that were worrying me were so first world problems. Okay? And I got to Uganda and saw people that were desperately poor and, and starving and in desperate need of the gospel. And my heart was broken. Because the things that I was worried about were so frivolous. But God used that encounter to completely change my life. You guys know the rest, of our the rest of our story with that. Another one that comes to mind is when I was working for Aaron. Um, when I originally started there, he was doing a, a traditional cattle operation. And then I, he called me in his office one day and he said, Look, man, I know this is going to be a struggle for you and for your family, but I feel like God's telling me that we need to do grass-fed beef. And, and for those of you who live in a hole and don't know, my family also does grass-fed beef. And, and that was a crisis of belief for me because I knew it was going to be a problem for my family. And, but I also knew that it was bigger than me. I mean, Aaron and I had a lot of conversation. It was obvious that the Lord was speaking that, and I trusted him in that. And so I know there's going to be a problem. I know the Lord is speaking, and, and how do I deal with this? We were sitting in church on a Sunday morning over when we were still at the Lehigh's location and and one of the worship songs that morning was the word was the song oceans okay and I'm in the middle of a crisis of belief I'm pouring my heart out to the Lord and I'm asking God what do I do and this bridge comes on you guys know the words of this it says spirit lead me where my trust is without borders let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. God was saying, Will, I am pushing you out to the deep water. Trust me. Changed everything for me. My family was still not happy about it, but my life was changed because I asked God directly, This is massive for me. This could divide my family. How do I deal with it? And God said, Trust me. And I did, and it was okay. 
I want you guys this week to ask yourselves, what are the, what are the experiences in my life that have changed everything? And if you can't recall one, ask for one. God has been saying over and over and over again to our body that we need to abide in Him. And when we abide in Him, when we have those daily experiences like yesterday morning when I'm sitting before the Lord asking Him to help me write this sermon, boom, Blackaby, true worshipers. That was an experience of the Lord. And what that does is it causes us to bless one another. It, that, that joy is what drives us to go, okay, man, who can I tell this to? And when we bless one another, it causes people to fall in love with Jesus just like we had the opportunity to do. Our stories and experiences shared as the Spirit leads are the medium. They are the way in which the gospel is shared. Listen, I'm convinced that the best place for that to happen is in our homes. Can you do it at a restaurant? Absolutely. But imagine how much better the conversations you're going to have would be if you're in the privacy of your home. Look, I, I know that even though the woman in our story isn't comfortable in the setting when she's at, okay, she has an experience with Jesus that I don't think could have happened in a different setting. If Jesus is in the temple, first of all, he's not reclined. And second of all, there's a much larger crowd around him. Same thing if he's in the street, if he's moving about. I think that, that she is drawn by the Holy Spirit to this time and this moment because she can have a one-on-one with Jesus. There have been times in my life when I have been given great hospitality and it has um, been opportunities for me to grow, greatly grow, okay? Choosing to live for others and to open up our lives for others is awesome, but I think that the, the catalyst where all that comes together is in our homes. I'm going to give you two examples, okay? Um, some of you guys uh, that have been with the church for a long time remember a lady named Miss Elizabeth, older lady that used to come to church with Bethany and I. She went on that first trip to Uganda with us. I met um, Miss Elizabeth and her, her husband at the time's name was Mike. Um, I met them when I was an intern um, in my very first church, and I was struggling very hard to learn to play the guitar, um, and my best friend Kyle was doing his best to teach me. Uh, and Kyle was a phenomenal guitar player. And, and I had started talking with this guy, Mr. Mike, who went to our church, and he was an excellent guitar player. And he invited me to his home. He said, why don't you come over on Tuesday nights, and we'll, we'll learn together. Man, that sounds great. Well, very quickly, that relationship developed, and, and now all of a sudden, me and Kyle and Mr. Mike are in a band together, okay, and, and had a ton of fun. But every Tuesday night, when I showed up at their house, you know how when, sometimes when you pull up to somebody's house, like you get out of the car and you can smell the food? Right? Okay, I'm going to do this on purpose so y'all will be hungry right for, church, right for lunch. Okay? I would get out of my vehicle and you could smell what Miss Elizabeth was cooking. And you walk in the door and there's pots on the stoves and it's obvious that she has poured time into this meal. And we would sit and we would eat and we would laugh and we would talk about what's going on in life until we couldn't eat another thing. And then we would all move to the living room while Miss Elizabeth cleaned the kitchen and we would play guitars. And uh, there's a song by Fernando Ortega called Our Great God. And y'all, if it didn't take that man three months to teach me that one song, it didn't take a day, okay? It, it, they loved me, that's all I can say. <laughs> it was rough, it was rough. And, and we would play guitars, and then when, when we'd had enough, we would go into the kitchen, and they would fresh grind coffee beans, and they would make a pot of coffee, and we would fix our coffee, and we'd go back to the living room, and we would sit, and we would play more music. Spend two or three hours at their house every Tuesday night. And it wasn't very long um, after we had been going there. Uh, Miss Elizabeth loves to tell this part of the story. She would say that one day I showed up with this cute little redhead with me. And I, she says, always says that I, Bethany walked in the door and she knew that was the one. She didn't tell me that at the time, but she knew. Y'all, so it was just special, special moments. And I learned so much about what it meant to love somebody outside of your immediate family. I never, I have a huge family, you guys know that about me, and I'd had intimate meals like that with my family, but never with someone that I wasn't related to. And it changed my understanding of what it meant to, to love people. It changed my understanding of what it meant to, to be hospitable. I'd seen my mom do those things, but she's my mom. That's her job, right? That's what I thought. But here I see this, this couple 
that poured their lives every Tuesday night into me and Kyle and Bethany and loved us well. This year, as we walk through the journey that is cancer, you guys changed our lives. Our church and our family took care of us. You brought meals to my home. You helped me clean up. You helped me with my kids when I needed help. You guys changed the way I think about what it means to suffer with one another. Thank you. I'm not the only one that deserves that. And people shouldn't have to go through cancer to receive it. Thank you for loving me well and loving my family well. The joy that I experienced through that, I didn't know could exist. I didn't know you could have joy in the middle of cancer. And you guys brought that to me. The world deserves that. And we can do that through sharing our homes. I want you to think about times when you've experienced hospitality this week. And I want you to think about how those things changed your life. Okay? I want you to ask yourself, who is it in your life that God is waiting for you to invite over for dinner? Now, this could be in a life group setting. Or it could just be you and someone else having dinner together. Our homes need to be places of love. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to fill that out completely yet. Let's walk through each of these one by one. Here's what I mean by love. Our, our homes can be places of love. When people think about your home, I want them to immediately think about the warmth that radiates from that place. That when they walk in the door, they know they are loved right where they are. Second thing, Authenticity. We need to make sure that our intentions are as pure as they can be when we invite others into our homes. If they're not pure, they will know. They will know through your tone. They will know through your body language. They will know. When people come into your home, they need to to not feel like they're in the home of a Pharisee being judged. Our homes need to be places of honesty. Our guests need to be confident that what is shared there will stay there and that your response will be honest, even if it's hard. This world does not need more lip service from the church. We need honesty, but done in a loving way. Our homes need to be transparent. We need to be real with ourselves in front of other people, okay? This is going to require us to deal with some awkwardness, But the result is that our guests are also going to be transparent with us. We set the bar when people come into our homes. If we're transparent, they will be transparent, and we will have a more intimate time together. Our homes need to be places of truth. The gospel needs to be the center of what we do. Now, I'm not saying that every time you invite somebody over your home, you need to whoop that Bible out and say, we're having Bible study, let's turn to Leviticus. Okay, That's not going to go well unless the Lord tells you to do that. But you need to have in your mind, it might be that you have a Bible study, but it may be that you simply weave gospel threads into your conversation as the Spirit leads. But the truth, the the gospel needs to be a part of that. Our homes need to be a place of refuge. The world that we live in is stressful, and sometimes people just need to escape for a moment. And we need to make our homes available for that. When someone needs an escape, they know that there is a chair at your home that is available for them. Our homes need to be a place of encouragement. As people leave your home, they should feel better about their lives. This may be because they see that you're just as messed up as they are, that your house is just as dirty, or it may be just an encouraging word that you gave through them. Or it may be that they just know that they have a friend, a co-laborer, somebody that is walking through life with them. Jesus brought these characteristics, these things with him everywhere he went. But we're not Jesus. We have to take the time to create these, okay? And it's going to be hard work to create these types of spaces in our homes. But it is part of our calling as believers. 
this, this list of characteristics, these things don't happen naturally. We have to work at them. You've heard me before talk about the need to remove the, the divide between secular, secular and sacred in our lives, and this is another area where that has to happen. We have in our minds that, that our home is our refuge and our escape, and in many ways it is. But there are times when we need to open our homes and be vulnerable with people and allow them to come in. Your, your home, whether you own it or rent it or just live with somebody, is a gift from God with the purpose of sharing that home with other people. Your home is as important to your ministry, to your calling. No, let me back up. Your home is more important to your ministry and your calling than this building is. There will be more intimate conversations happening in your homes than there will be in this building because your home is set up for that. Okay, You will be able to do those things a thousand times better at home than you'll ever be able to do here. Just as a simple reason, we don't even have a kitchen, right? Sometimes the toilets work. Look, I know that this seems like an overwhelming prospect to say, Will, you want me to do what with my house? Have you seen my house? Have you seen my house? Look, I'm the most extroverted extrovert ever in the history of extroverts, okay? And this is daunting to me. It's not an easy task because it, it causes us to change the way we live. Look at verses 44 and 46 with me out of Luke 7. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. She gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Look, it's obvious through this interaction that for Jesus, the way we treat our guest is important. Those cultural customs were important in their culture. Our cultures are different. Don't put oil on my head when I walk in your door, Russ. Thanks, okay? Unless Jesus tells you to, and then I'm all right with it. But it matters. Look, living life like that is going to require us to plan ahead for interruptions. It, it may require that you need to stay up just a little bit later and make, thing that, make sure that everything's ready for the next day that, so when those interruptions happen, it's okay because you're prepared. It may require that you're not prepared and you're okay with that. You make a change on the fly. I'll tell you what it will require. It's going to require you to train your children, Okay. I have a conversation with my kids nearly every time before company comes over, and I say, when we have company, that is not the time to play the piano, pull out the loudest toys you own, yell at one another, and interrupt me and your mother, right? We have a conversation every time, and every time, what do they do? They play the piano, and they yell at others, and <laughs> look, I got a lot of kids, right? Y'all know that? We have to train them. But here's what I want my kids to understand, too. I don't want them to just know that when I have, Daddy has company over and Mama has company over, that they're supposed to sit quietly in the corner. I want them to be involved in the conversation. I, I caught myself one time. I, I told one of the kids or all of the kids that these people are not coming to see you. They're coming to see me, and that was wrong. Our kids need to be, need to be a part of, of our lives and a part of who, has got, who God is calling us to be. I want my kids to be a part of that process. But we have to train them. They don't just know that stuff. And so it may be that in order to live um, a life and to be able to open our homes up like this, that we, we have to train our kids to be hostess, hosts and hostesses. And it may be that we need to train our kids what appropriate behavior is at appropriate times. And y'all, I have a three-year-old. Well, she's not even three yet. She acts like a three-year-old. I know how hard that is. This is my fifth three-year-old. I know how hard that is. It's daunting. I don't know what Russ said, but he's making Brittany laugh. None. One. Okay. <laughs> Great point, though, Russ. Great point is we got to help each other. When, when the Meeks the other day, they came over to my house, and some of the kids were fussing, they pick one up. We do the same thing with their kids. We've got to help each other, okay? We have to change the way that we choose to live in order for people or for Christ to be able to use our homes. We've got to change the way we live, but we have to make that decision. We have to decide this is something that God's calling me to, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to need his help, but I'm going to do it, okay? Look, I want to close up with this. This was in my daily reading this morning. Look, God is continuing 
to speak the same thing over and over and over again. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God is calling us to love one another in a way that our culture is not accustomed to. God wants the world around us to see who he is by the way that we love one another. God is calling us to live selfless lives. This kind of life is going to be difficult, but it is going to be so full of joy. So full of joy. To me, there is nothing better in this world than sharing a meal with someone that I love and having conversation and laughing. And is it a lot of work before they get there? Yes. Is it a lot of work after they leave? Yes. But it's worth those moments of memories that are being made. It's worth those moments of someone entering your home and knowing when they leave that you love them. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. God, I know that today is challenging. It's challenging for me. God, as we, um, during this time of year as we normally do, we evaluate our lives and we're looking for areas to change. Father, it is my, my prayer, it is my desire for me and for my people that we would choose to live selflessly, that we would choose to open our homes, to uh, invite opportunities for people to come in and to, to feel welcome and to feel loved. God, I ask that you would change our hearts. Put us in a, in a place, a new place of, of being able to set our own desires, our own needs aside in order to care for one another. Father, give us opportunities to experience the joy of giving things up for others. God, give us the courage and the boldness to, to give well. God, help us to be the people that you have called us to be.